We'll read the entire psalm together. Psalm 62, one of David's psalms. Let's hear the Lord's holy word. Truly, my soul waiteth upon God. From him cometh my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. How long will ye imagine mischief against a man? Ye shall be slain, all of you. As a bowing wall shall ye be, and as a tottering fence. They only consult to cast him down from his excellency. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. Selah. My soul... Wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense, I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times. Ye people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Surely men of low degree are vanity, and men of high degree are a lie. To be laid in the balance, they are altogether lighter than vanity. Trust not in oppression, and become not vain in robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. God hath spoken once, twice have I heard this, that power belongeth unto God. Also unto thee, O Lord, belongeth mercy. For thou renderest to every man according to his work. God bless the reading of his word for his name's sake. Now let's seek the Lord together. Let's all pray. Before our God we commence to declare, thus saith the Lord, we pour out our hearts before thee, for thou art a refuge for us. We need thee to shelter us under thy wings, cover us in the blood of Christ, bless us tonight for his sake, do what thou hast promised to do, and be what thou hast promised to be to thy people. Bring the word that will be in season. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. We come tonight to what a number of commentators have called the only psalm. And they call it the only psalm because there is a six-fold reference to the word only in this brief psalm. We don't know when this psalm was written by David, nor the particular events that occasioned it, but we do know it was written by that sweet psalmist of Israel during one of those numerous times in his life when he was confronted by some enemy who wanted to destroy him. Whether it was penned from some cave during his days of hiding from the death threats of Saul or or written during the time when he was an outcast from his own kingdom because of the attempt of Absalom, his own son, to overtake the throne, or written during the numerous times when men rose up against him, really doesn't make much difference for us to understand what this psalm is saying to us tonight. The fact of the matter is, it was a time when David's faith in God was under a great trial. It would seem that The Holy Spirit left out any of the particular surrounding circumstances to this psalm that it might be suited to all of God's people in all ages. In other words, in order that there might be something here for you tonight and for me. It is a very practical psalm because it deals with that very practical matter of, of holding on to God when there's nothing else to hold on to. Holding on to God 
when there's nothing else to hold on to. Rest assured that if you're a child of God, your faith in the Lord and in Christ's gospel is going to be tested. Sometimes very severely, but it is going to be tested. There can never be any growth in faith unless that faith is called into exercise. Most of us would rather that our faith, I think, maybe I'm wrong, but I think that most believers would rather that their faith would just kind of grow of itself. They would rather that we could just ask God to increase our faith and abracadabra, we are suddenly in possession of a strong faith in answer to prayer. But I find in my Bible that God never matures our faith in that fashion. True it is that the faith that first lays hold of Christ, the faith that moves us to turn from our sin and cast everything upon Christ's work on the cross, that faith is instantly and supernaturally given. At one moment we didn't have it, and the next moment we did, and we believed. And we repented. We turned from the sin, we turned from the world, and we went to Jesus Christ. Faith was the vehicle to bring us there. That was instantaneous, real, living faith. It's a gift of God. Because you know Ephesians 2, 8, 9 as well as I do. For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that, and the Greek word means, and that faith is not of yourselves. That faith is a gift of God not of works, lest any man should boast. But that faith is in its infancy. In order for that faith to grow and to, to mature and, and to deepen, it will be necessary for God to bring about circumstances in our lives where it will call upon that faith to work. To work. Just like, you know, you hope to there's, there's plenty of people. I started going back to the gym at the start of the year. I hadn't been able to do that. And I like to try to take care of myself and just go on a treadmill and walk a couple of miles. But you have some people in there that they want to do more than that. They want to get ripped. But you know, you only get that way by exercising. That's the only way it happens. You don't wake up with bulging muscles one day because you want bulging muscles. It takes a lot of work to get to that point. The spiritual application is it's also true of strong faith. It takes a lot of test, a lot of resistance. It's called resistance training. It takes a lot of resistance for that faith to increase. And the stronger the faith gets, the more able it has, is able to deal with weightier matters when it comes to trials and testing. Of course, you know what that means, that the guy who is now bench-pressing 200 easily, it's got to increase for him to grow stronger. And so that means when the faith grows stronger, that the Lord increases the testing. The trials become more severe. It takes more testing to grow the faith more. Real faith does not sit back in a spiritual recliner and take it easy. Real faith despises the counterfeit. A faith, in other words, that, that talks much about believing, but does nothing to prove that it exists, that it really believes. It's all talk. Or to use the words of the Apostle James, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. I'll prove to you that my faith is genuine. It's not just talk. Having said that, the growth of a Christian's faith is not something that begins with him. Right? That, that, 
That's where this gym analogy falls down. It begins with that guy or that woman getting up at whatever time in the morning, getting dressed and doing all that stuff, and going working out that hour on the weights. And that's not how it works with us. By that I mean that God has to order the affairs of our lives in order to bring about that faith to the point where it has to take action. He's intent on growing our faith. And so he calls for the storm. He calls for the dark clouds to come across our skies. He calls upon that famine. He calls for suffering to come. He allows the enemies to arise and attack us. It's all part of the plan. It didn't take him by surprise. It wasn't just a matter of, well, God had to permit that. Oh, it's not just God giving permission. It's God ordering the affairs so that these things happen to us because one thing he is intent on is growing our faith. Why? Three times in his word he says this, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Or in Habakkuk, the just shall live by his faith. That's how we live. We really live the Christian life. Not by sight, but by faith. The ultimate reason, of course, for this, all these things that take place to grow our faith is what? It's all about our chief end. To glorify God and to enjoy Him. They're intimately tied. The more that we are glorifying the Lord, the more that we enjoy Him. And the more that we enjoy the Lord, the more our lives glorify Him. And this is where faith comes in. Faith is working to that end. We're enabled to glorify the Lord in the midst of the famine, in the midst of the loss, in the midst of death and suffering, by faith. We're enabled to enjoy the Lord by faith. Faith. The life of faith is a life that will say, whatever storms may blow, whatever troubles may come, whatever my feelings or reasoning tells me, I'm going to trust the Lord. That's it. I'm not going to trust my feelings. I'm not going to trust what I see with my eyes. I'm not going to trust what someone else tells me. I've got to trust what the Lord says. End of story. It's ironical that one of faith's most difficult works is that of waiting. We don't usually associate those two words as friends, waiting and working. Yet never is faith more exercised than when we are called by circumstances, to wait upon the Lord. And that's all we're locked up to do, to wait upon the Lord. That is why the Bible describes a man of faith as one who waits upon God. The greater the faith, the greater will be that believer's ability to wait. Worth repeating. The greater the faith, the greater will be that believer's ability to wait upon the Lord. The smaller the faith, the more the child of God grows impatient and wants to do something or must see something that will, he thinks, strengthen his faith. But that's not faith. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. The substance of things hoped for. 
which means they're not yet realized. That's faith. Faith is at its greatest when it sees nothing and still praises God for who he is, for what he has been and always will be, for what he has done and what he is still doing and yet to do, in spite of not seeing anything. That's faith. I was struck many years ago by a comment made by Spurgeon when he said he felt that the the child of God in the place of prayer who feels absolutely nothing when he's praying but still prays on, he says that is the exercise of faith far more than someone who's feeling, oh, I have all these emotions and tears and I must be in touch with God. It caught my attention. With that in mind, I want to speak for a little bit tonight on the fifth verse of Psalm 62. My soul, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from Him. First, as we deal with this subject, it's, it's simply two words. If you're taking notes, now's the time for the sermon title for Sermon Audio. Waiting faith. That's all I want to deal with. Waiting faith. First thought, the contemplation of waiting faith. The contemplation of waiting faith. Faith, as it waits, it contemplates. It, it thinks. Ponders. I find that this psalm is a psalm of contemplation. You won't find any direct prayer or praise in it. It's unusual like that. But what you do find in the first seven verses is David, as he, it's, 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 well... I was going to say wild, but that would be a bit strong. It's very interesting. This is a psalm. He's inspired by the Holy Ghost to write this. And the first seven verses, he's talking to himself. He's talking to himself. My soul, wait thou only upon God. And so he goes. He's contemplating, as he's waiting... Certain things about himself, certain things about his God, certain things about his circumstances. And as he thinks about that, he's, he draws certain encouragement from that contemplation. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a rough time. Circumstances aren't pleasant. He's got enemies that want him dead. And he's not falling to pieces. He's thinking about things. As he contemplates, they encourage him, the things he thinks about. One of the best ways to encourage yourself in the Lord when circumstances that you're facing aren't very encouraging is to talk to yourself. In other words, contemplate as you talk to yourself how things really are. Do you do that? Sorry, Olivia. I'm going to embarrass you, but I, I, I walked in the room and I, this, who's she talking to? Herb wasn't there. And she didn't know I was in the room. And she's talking away. I thought there was somebody out there and I wanted to see who it was. And it was just Olivia. Of course, I don't think it was about these matters she was talking to herself about, but this is the idea we actually, when we face those circumstances, we talk to ourselves about the circumstances that we're in. We use our mind, we reason, we look at, we look at things honestly. 
So sit down and, and reason from, from faith's vantage point. Faith's vantage point. You want to look your fears and your worries straight in the eye. It's, it's like people, you know, when they don't want to look in the eye, something's wrong. Something is just wrong. There's a reason they don't want to look me in the eye. They want to avoid eye contact. And the worst thing you can do is to try to not make eye contact with your circumstances. Look them in the eye. David was doing this. As he's contemplating, he's looking at things how they really are. And so do we. Not pretending there's something that they're not. Not playing make-believe, but what they really are. And when you do that through the eye of faith, you see how groundless your worries are. Groundless. How else in the world could the Holy Ghost actually tell Christians where, when they are in the depths of tribulation and trial, be careful for nothing? Nothing. Be full of care about nothing. Jesus said, don't take one anxious thought about tomorrow. How do you utter those words if it's not true that the way to face as we wait, waiting faith actually looks at the circumstances square in the eye? Don't try, and this is a mistake we've often made, do not think that if you ignore the problem, it's going to go away. That is foolishness. It is not going to go away. You will only multiply your problems and your faith is not going to grow stronger, but it's going to grow weaker. The Lord is setting a plan before us, a way of dealing with them right here. You must learn to encourage yourself in the Lord as you contemplate on the Lord. Doesn't it remind you of David in Psalm 42? Why art thou cast down, O my soul? He's talking to himself. And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. He goes on later in the psalm and, and, and asks the same question. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the health, changes the word now, for the health of his countenance. He was in, most commentators think that was the case with Absalom trying to kill him, his own son. And he had been forced away from the house of God. He longed to, be, to go to them to, to worship God on the holy day, but he couldn't. That's waiting faith. That's what it contemplates. I don't mean now when I say this, I don't mean that you sit down and begin to mutter over all of your problems and fears and worries. That will never lead to anything productive, let alone strengthen your faith. But I do mean that you contemplate your situation, your adverse circumstances, in the light of God, in the light of his word, in the light of his work. Several things let me suggest that you contemplate. Number one, contemplate the absolute truth of God's word when it says, all things work together for good to them that love God to them who are the called according to his purpose. Faith takes God at his word and believes that everything God will make 
and make it work together for good. Doesn't mean that only good things are going to happen. God will take the bad things and make them work together for our good, for our benefit, because that's what love does. As I said this morning, that's what love does. Always about the benefit of the one you love. True it is that I cannot always see, get, how they're going to work together for good. But if I could, then where's the faith in that? Life appears at times like so many little pieces that have been shattered. Pieces that have no rhyme, no reason, and you certainly don't seem to be able to put the pieces back together. But I must remember that they are pieces, shattered though they be. They are pieces of a pattern, pieces of a God-ordained pattern, pieces and a pattern that the Lord has planned. I must not miss this. I may not understand the meaning of it all, but, you know, there is one thing I can say with absolute certainty. The reason and meaning of all those things that are working together for my good is always found in Christ. Everything God has planned and purposed, Ephesians chapter 1, is in Christ Jesus. All things are working toward that. The purpose of God in Christ. You've got to believe that. You've got to contemplate that. People today are always looking for the meaning of the events of life, particularly when they're difficult events. The question is why? Why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? And sadly, they hear preaching that would lead them to believe that they must always find the meaning behind it. There's a lesson that the Lord is teaching you in this, and you've just got to find out what it is. And you know, the fact of the matter is, God never told Job why he did what he did. Never told him why. Now, he taught Job some things that Job needed to teach, but he never once told, at least in the record of Scripture, never told him why. It was his plan that all ten of his children be slain, that he would lose all of his wealth, and that he would be struck with such a disease he wished he could die. Many times, faith must take its stand on the character and the person of God when we don't see the meaning. Because that's what faith does. It just trusts him. You can't trust people, but you can trust the Lord. You can't trust your own understanding, but you can trust the Lord, even when you don't understand. The fact is God holds the meaning in his hand. And that's the point we have to hold on to. Waiting faith will contemplate that about God. Without it, brothers and sisters, we will fall to pieces and be controlled by our circumstances. And we will be filled with worry and fear and angst and become discouraged and even depressed and perhaps even despair. It could all be stopped in its tracks. If we got to this point, I'm going to contemplate who God is. I'm going to contemplate that he is whatever is happening. He's going to bring good out of this. Do you believe that? Oh, I know. The devils believe and they tremble. 
But that's not the kind of faith I'm talking about. It's the faith that works. And the faith that works is the faith that waits. That's the great work of faith, to wait upon God and to contemplate that truth. This is for your good. Second area of contemplation. Contemplate and encourage yourself in the truth that whatever has changed is merely a change in your circumstances. That's it. Whatever has changed is just a change in your circumstances. God's eternal power has not changed. Has it? Isn't God immutable? He will not change. He cannot change. So his power has not changed. His electing grace has not changed. You're still one of his elect. You're still bound for glory. You're still one of his people and he's still your God. Although the circumstances have changed, he hasn't changed. The, 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 the power in, in Christ's redeeming blood has not changed. The blood shall never lose its power, as we sing. No, never, no, never. It avails for me forever. It shall never lose its power. I'm glad to know that. Because when the trials, the tribulations come, we think things and we do things, we say things that are simply not spiritual. They're so unchristlike. Isn't it good to know that even when our faith is not up to the, to the task at hand and we act irrationally, at least spiritually that way, that God forgives us and the blood still covers the sin. Your name has not been erased from the Lamb's book of life. That hasn't changed. It's still there. Things that are eternal cannot change. So whatever happens, brothers and sisters, God hasn't changed. And your relationship to him hasn't changed. You're still his child. He still has promised never to leave you nor forsake you. He's promised to be your guide even unto and over death. You can rest there. Hallelujah. Thirdly, contemplate the truth that God's thoughts toward you are thoughts of peace and not of evil. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end or a future and a hope or a future full of hope, if I can put it like that. Now that word thoughts in the Hebrew it's actually my plans, my will, my purpose for you. They're not plans of evil, but they're plans and purposes of peace. So those circumstances that cause the angst, that cause the reactions within us that are really unbecoming to the Lord, those things that we, we are told not to worry about, those things are part of God's plans and His thinking upon us to fulfill His purposes in our life because He set that particular test of your faith to grow your faith to do you good, and you needed it. Whether you think so or not, He knows better than you. He knew what you needed at that point in time in your life. And he sends it. He sends it. Knowing the whole while 
this, this plan is one for their peace, for their, the word is shalom, you know the word, but prosperity. And not of evil, that, that, it's not moral evil, it's calamity. My, my plans are those of, of prosperity and not calamity. Unbelief says otherwise. This is bad, this is bad, this is so bad. Nothing good can come from this. Tell me what good can come from this. You know who's talking? Unbelief. You haven't contemplated the fact that, well, God said his plans are plans of peace, prosperity, and not calamity. Waiting faith contemplates that. It helps it to wait and not grow impatient. And so I've got to do something. How full of despair we become when the enemy comes in like a flood. When trials press hard, urging us to give up faith in God and take matters into our own hands. We would never say it like that, but that's what it is. We're taking matters into our own hands. We're not at that place where we say, I'm just going to let the Lord handle this. That's a great place to be, you know. I'm just going to let the Lord deal with it. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the understanding of what he's doing. But he does. Lord, it's yours. I'm not going to worry about it. We are told by the devil, that enemy, that God has designed evil for us. He's not going to bless us. But it is then that waiting faith will encourage itself in the Lord. When it seems like this is not what the Lord is doing. You, th- you think blessing looks like this? Well, let me ask you about, you know that little town called Ziklag? David made the big mistake of fleeing to the land of the Philistines to get away from Saul's pursuit of his life. And the king in the land gives him the town of Ziklag to, to live in with his 600 men and their families. And he's, uh, he's become an habitual deceiver because he's telling the king, what, what, what have you been doing? Well, I've been out fighting Israel, the Jews, the Israelites, my king's enemies. Of course, he was lying because he was actually fighting the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and all those guys. Well, David was not in a good spot spiritually. Unbelief had come in. There's but a a step betwixt me and death, he said. What a lie that was, because God had already said, you're going to be the the next king. He couldn't die. He couldn't die. But he goes over to that land and begins to deceive. And he thinks he's all safe and sound there. But you know what happened. The enemy came and they burned Ziklag with fire and they took away all the women and the children. David, as he returns back with his men from administering his rod of wrath upon the heathen, he could not see at first glance how it was good that Ziklag was in ashes, that his family, his wives and his children were gone, that the sons and daughters of his men were gone, that such a bunch of heathen could be enriched by his flocks and herds and families. But God understood, and God saw 
And God intended it for David's good and his prosperity. You see, God brings his people to that place in life where all their hopes and their dreams and their plans become like Ziklag in ashes. Ashes. Death comes into the home. Sickness ravages the family. Your financial resources, which you thought would always be there, are gone. It just takes the little finger of God to move, and He can devastate. It's easy, and He's done it to His people. Your Ziklag, that carefully built, secured, you think, cherished Ziklag, now lies in ashes. The most natural thing to do is to become overcome with anguish, so much so that we become angry. Angry at God. David's men, after they were done weeping, where they could weep no more, they got angry at David and they were talking about killing him. It's your fault this happened, David. And we can become, in those cases, when we're not exercising waiting faith, we can become angry. Angry at all those around us. Angry with our God. Angry with ourselves. Angry with life in general. We become angry people. And it's so obvious. Learn the lesson here and learn it well. That it's, it's now that David showed his spiritual greatness. What he did first. His men are talking about stoning him. What he did first was to encourage himself in the Lord. He didn't pray first. He didn't pray first. The first thing he did was to encourage himself in the Lord. He contemplated God. He looked Ziklag and ashes squarely in the face. And he turned his thoughts to God. And then he prayed. It makes such a difference when you first encourage yourself in the Lord before you begin to pray to the Lord. I imagine, I imagine if the first thing he did would have prayed would have been all this anguish and sorrow and hurt and perhaps even anger being poured out. What are you doing, Lord? But that's not the approach he took. You'll never pray with meaning, with faith, with trust, until in spite of all the ashes of Ziklag, your awful circumstances, you get to the place where you can Encourage yourself in the Lord when everything you see with your eyes is discouraging. That's faith. Everything you see with your eyes is discouraging. And so what else can you do but encourage yourself in the Lord? When you're in trouble... Never pray until you first praise. Simple rule of thumb. Never pray until you first praise. You must first see the Lord. That's the contemplation of waiting faith. Let me, 
move on quickly and look at the character of waiting faith. The character of waiting faith. There's a lot that's called faith today that's not faith at all. You, you hear these interviews of people that if they've lost their house in a fire or whatever. Well, it was our faith that got us through. It was our faith. We had faith in our faith. Well, what, do, what do we find in this psalm regarding the character of faith that, that waits upon the Lord? Well, s- simply, in the first place, it's submissive faith. Waiting faith is submissive. That word wait, in the Hebrew, it means to be silent. It does not murmur, complain. It does not pine away. It does not groan under the dispensation of God, but is silent. And the silence is an indication that faith has submitted itself to the will of the Lord. I'm not arguing. That's what waiting faith. I'm not going to argue with you, the Lord. Isn't that what even Job said to his wife when she told him to curse God and die? You're talking like one of the heathen. Shall we not receive evil at the hand of the Lord because we take the good? He was telling her, be silent. Don't complain. Don't murmur. Don't tell me to tell God to just take my life. Waiting faith is satisfied with whatever God sees fit to bring into the life. It, it harkens back, does it not, to your believing that he's making all things work together for good and that his plans for you are always plans of prosperity and not of calamity. And if you believe that, if you really believe that, then you're going to be content with what he orders for your life. David, at that moment, was looking beyond the enemies who took their families that were causing him so much trouble. He looked beyond the secondary and looked at the primary, which was the sovereign hand of God moving things in place. We're all about, as Reformed Presbyterians, believing in the sovereignty of God. But this gets down to where the rubber, the theology, meets the road. He does as he wills in heaven and in earth. He will accomplish his pleasure. That's God. And since I know what, regarding as far as his will is concerned, his sovereign pleasure is to do us good and to prosper us and not to destroy us. While we don't understand why and while we don't like, we don't like what's happening, he never told us to like it. He didn't expect David to dance a dance when he came back and saw Ziklag and ashes and his family's gone. But God does say, I want you to trust me to be content with my plan for your life. That's what characterizes waiting faith and submissive. It shows that there's a lack of it when unbelief is dissatisfied with what God is doing. Not happy. Thinks that God should be doing something else. And it's too quick. The, this, this, this unbelief is too quick to assert uh, self-will over God's will. And that's dangerous territory to be in. Dangerous. Not only is it submissive faith, but it is steadfast faith. Steadfast. I, I, again, I come back to that word wait. 
It does not come and go with the sunshine. It waits. It's steadfast. Senses tell us there's no point in carrying on the course. Faith is going to remain fixed upon the Lord and upon the Lord's will. Faith takes God, the old saying is, takes God at his word. And if God has promised something, then it is our privilege and our duty to wait steadfastly until the promise is fulfilled. Period. If God has promised us something from his word, it's our privilege and duty to wait until he fulfills the promise. Waiting faith believes that. it's, It's what characterizes. That's why it's waiting. Well, Lord, I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting. Good. I'm testing your faith. I'm testing your faith. I'm growing your faith. You know, it's, it's, it comes to mind, Isaiah 30, I think it is, the verse. It's about God waiting. Therefore will I wait, he says, that I might be gracious unto you. I'm going to wait. I'm not going to step in right away. I'm going to wait. And that means I'm going to make you wait in order that I will be gracious unto you. It's a wonderful verse of Scripture. God waits, and in waiting makes us wait so he can be gracious to us. There's something that he's doing in the waiting. We must believe that. God never gives false hope to his people. He doesn't dangle a carrot in front of us, playing with us. That is not the Lord. It's also supplicating faith. So David turns to the people in this psalm as they sing it, trust in him at all times. Ye people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah, stop and think about that. Selah, stop and think about that. Unbelief doesn't pray. It doesn't pray. Doesn't believe that prayer has any effect upon the Lord. Makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, why would you pray if you don't believe it's going to make any difference? Why would you come together and cry to God and wrestle with the Lord in prayer if you thought it was a vain exercise? But God said, I said not to the seed of Jacob, seek ye me in vain. I didn't tell them that. It was the, 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 the way that God was putting it. It was quite the opposite. I told the seed of Jacob, you seek me and it won't be a vain errand. Faith believes that. And the stronger that faith is, the more it will wait and supplicate upon the Lord. It's always the indicator. It's always a a ruler or a thermometer, you might say, of how warm our faith is. Do we supplicate? Do we pour out our hearts before God? You can tell when faith is pouring out its heart. It doesn't just say prayers. It believes. I have the ear of the Almighty. And my God has promised to hear me and to answer. I just have to wait in prayer. Something else about waiting faith that characterizes it, it is serving faith. 
a waitress went out to an establishment to eat on Friday. Treated myself. I forgot it was Father's Day that weekend. The waitress, female version of waiter, was very nice. Patricia. Brought me my meal and all that. I said, could I get the check? She comes out, piece of paper, happy Father's Day. No charge. She was waiting on me. It was a nice, never had that happen before. I mean, waitress, it's free meal. Happy Father's Day. But she was, she was a waiting on me. That means she was serving me. And when you wait upon the Lord, it's not passivity, it's actually service. Faith does not sit in the recliner. Faith, as it waits upon God, works for God. That's, that's how it works, folks. Faith works. Faith will pray. Faith will praise. Faith will be patient. Faith will witness. All those things as it waits upon the Lord. It seeks to serve. Always seeking to serve. What wilt thou have me to do as I wait for your blessing? As I wait for you to deal with these adverse circumstances, what can I do? It's unbelief that paralyzes us and leaves us lazy doing nothing. Faith always works. Third and final thought, and that is the reason for waiting faith. The reason. See, I don't always have to have alliteration. As you see here, it's just an R. I tell the preacher students, don't get caught up in it. That can really mess up your point because you've got to find a word that is alliterates or passes. No. The reason for waiting faith. If you think of a word that's with a C that worked there, let me know what it is and I'll put it in. But it's, what's the reason for the waiting faith? Well, the psalmist waited only upon God. Why? Because he knew that all of his expectations were from him. My soul, wait thou only upon God. For, because my expectation is from him. That's, that's who he was depending on. It wasn't from anybody. He, he wasn't expecting anything from anybody else. It was the Lord. He believed that God was his strength and weakness. Verse 7, he refers to God as the rock of my strength. In verse 11, power belongeth unto God. So it's absolutely foolish to have our expectations in men, for without Christ, men can do nothing. So why, why would be looking to, hoping for, expecting deliverance from men? I'm waiting on God, he says, because that's... My, all my expectations are tied up in him. He says in verse 6, because God was his shelter. Yeah. He, he only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. So he is now, his life is in danger, whatever the case might be. That one man wanted to kill him. He is my defense. I, I expect him to protect me. To provide for me. To deal with my enemies. You see, our, in our folly, our expectations are too often based on wrong foundations. We have expectations of others. And that's the wrong foundation for expectation. I served in two congregations in 30-some years of preaching. And I always 
reminded them at various times throughout my ministry, I promise you, I promise you, I'm going to disappoint you. I'm going to let you down. It's not because I'm going to try to or that I want to, but I am at my best just a man. I'm not God, and I will disappoint you. But I want to tell you of one who will never disappoint, and that's God. He'll never let you down. He'll never leave you holding the bag. You'll not be ashamed for trusting in him. But in our folly, we have these expectations of others. We have wrong expectations of ourselves that gets us into trouble. When your expectation is only from the Lord, what a different life it is for the child of God. It's only Him. Those who are worldly wise, as we would put it, worldly wise people, they have this, they always wait upon, wait for those in whom they have placed Expectations. Let me explain what I mean. There's been many a son or a daughter, or grandson or granddaughter, or or niece or nephew, that has waited hand and foot, hand and foot, on their aging father or grandfather or mother or grandmother or old aunt our old uncle. And you want to know why, what I've learned through the years, that they have extended such extravagant kindness to them. Because they were in the will. There was a large chunk of money coming toward them. They had this expectation It wasn't done out of love. Because when they found out that their name wasn't in the will, all the love disappeared and they were angry. We need to, in the spiritual sense, be like the worldly wise. David is saying, in essence here, My soul imitate the worldly like this. Wait thou only upon God because your expectation is from Him. You expect to receive from Him. And so why else would you not wait only upon Him? That's where I expect to get all that is worth having. I'm not going to get it from people. The things that really matter, I'm not going to get from people. What does it matter, brothers and sisters, if you get the admiration of people and you don't have the well done of God? What does it matter if people admire you? After all, in this sense of expectation, Paul told the Philippian church, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Whether that be financial or or, or emotional or spiritual, my God. So he's telling them, your expectation must be from him. Luther makes this point in a little quaint fictional story. He said he saw a bird, a little bird, one day sitting on a branch, singing, chirping these words. You'll know why it's fiction, because birds can't chirp words, but the point he was making, he said that little bird sang, mortal cease from toil and sorrow, 
God provideth for the morrow. And as that bird chirped, it stopped and picked up this little grain of wheat. Just a little grain. And again sang those same words, Mortal, cease from toil and sorrow. God provideth for the morrow. That little bird didn't have a large silo to which it could fly off and get food for life. It didn't even have a handful of wheat. All it had was one little grain. But it still kept on with the song. Mortal, cease from toil and sorrow, God provideth for the morrow. Your expectation, I tell you this as individual believers, and I tell you this collectively as a church, God alone must be your expectation. Only Him. Waiting faith is only looking to the Lord and nowhere else. Now, as I said to some folk this morning, it's what happens after my final amen that matters. So what's it going to be? I tell my students, when you preach, you're always preaching for change. Every time you preach, you're wanting to see God do something in those who listen to that message. Not just hear truth and store it up, but to do something that indicates they got it. My prayer for you is that when the final amen is said, you'll know what you need to do. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's seek the Lord together. Father in heaven, in Jesus' name, we leave thy word in thy gracious hands, knowing that it will not return unto thee void, empty, having not fulfilled its purpose. We believe that, Lord. We thank thee that thou canst not lie. So do that work alone which thou canst do. And enable us just one day at a time to wait only upon thee. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen.